Amen. All right, well, we're there in Jonah, chapter number four, and we've been going through the book of Jonah on Sunday mornings, been going through a series in the book of Jonah, and we took a little bit of a break from Jonah because I was in Boise, and uh, we weren't in the book of Jonah for a little bit, but uh, we're, we're back in chapter four, and we're actually finishing up uh, the, the book of Jonah and the, the study here in Jonah, and uh, we're going to be in chapter four, but I'd like you to look back at the last verse of chapter three, just to kind of set the context a little bit. If you remember, well, let's read it, Jonah chapter three and verse 10. The Bible says, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. If you remember the context of the book of Jonah, Jonah has basically led the, the city of Nineveh uh, through revival. He got them saved, and he got them to repent of their evil ways, and as a result of that, they were spared of the judgment of God, and that's what we read there in, in verse 10. It said that God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, because God had said that he was going to judge Nineveh and that he was going to destroy them for their wickedness, but God repented, God changed his mind, God turned from that uh, thought because of the fact that he saw their works, that they also turned from their evil way, and of course they'd gotten saved, and they'd also turned uh, from their sin, and we're going to see that here in a minute, and for that reason, God chose to not destroy them, and the last part of verse 10 says that uh, he said that he would do unto them, and the Bible says, and he did it not. And I want to just kind of begin this, this morning sermon uh, just by uh, making a statement because I recently made a video about the fires here in, in uh, California, and it was a video called, you know, Is God Judging California? Uh, or something along those lines, or are the fires here in California the judgment of God? And, I, you know, I got some questions and some feedback about that video, and I want to address those questions. And it's interesting because it kind of goes with the context, what we're talking about here, the judgment of God. I want to make sure that people uh, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And I feel like if I need to address it to one person, then I should probably address it publicly because there may be other people that are thinking the same thing. So I want to begin by just kind of uh, making some statements in regard to that video, and then we're going to uh, apply it here in this chapter as well. If you watch that video, you know, you heard me say uh, several things about these fires and our attitude and my attitude uh, towards the judgment of God. But I want to make sure that people understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying uh, that God cannot use natural disasters or uh, fires like the one in paradise uh, to bring his judgment. So I really want to make sure that people don't misunderstand uh, what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it can't be that God uses a natural disaster or that God uses a fire. And I'm not saying that God would never use uh, those things in order to bring his judgment upon a city or a nation or a state or whatever it might be. I'm also not saying that God isn't judging California. You know, I'm not going to stand up here and dogmatically say God is judging California, and I'm not going to stand up here and dogmatically say God is not judging California. You know, I don't know uh, if he is or he isn't, so I'm not going to make those statements. But I want to make sure people understand, I'm, I'm definitely not saying God isn't judging California. And I want to say this, I'm definitely not saying that God shouldn't <laughs> judge California. You know, because I don't want people to take that video and say like, oh, Pastor Jimenez is defending California and trying to make it out that California is some righteous state. Look, we live in one of the, if not the most wicked states in this country. 
And if God decided to burn down the entire state of California, he'd be justified in doing so. So I am not saying that, you know, God isn't or shouldn't or wouldn't judge California, and God would be totally justified to destroy whatever city or nation he decides to because God is just and his uh, ways are good. So I want to make sure that people understand that. I'm not saying, you know, because I don't want people to think like, oh, whenever there's some natural disaster, you can't say it's uh, the judgment of God because some video you watched me make or something like that. I never said that in those videos, and I want to make sure people understand that. I'm not saying that God couldn't use a natural disaster. I'm not saying that God isn't using a natural disaster. And I'm not saying that God, uh, that it'd be wrong for God to do that. Here's what I am saying, and this is where it kind of ties in with the book of Jonah. The Bible tells us, and specifically the book of Jonah teaches us, how we as believers can withhold the judgment of God upon the area that we live in or the area where God intends to judge. You're there in Jonah chapter 3. Look at verse number 5, and I want you to notice, what is it that Jonah did to cause God's judgment to not come upon uh, the nation of Nineveh? And keep in mind that Jonah wasn't even uh, from Nineveh or didn't even care about Nineveh. You know, Jonah's backslidden, and yet this, uh, this formula worked for him. The first thing that Jonah did is he got these people saved. Notice Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5. And we talked about this several weeks ago when we were in, the, in Jonah 3, but I just want to refresh your memory. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5, the Bible says this, So the people of Nineveh believed God. The Bible says that the people, the people of Nineveh believed God. I believe that statement is showing that these people got saved. And you don't have to turn there, but here's a cross-reference for you. Romans 4.3 says this, For what saith the Scripture? This is about Abraham, who's also an Old Testament saint. And it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So the Bible says when Abraham believed God, that's when Abraham got saved. Well, here we're told that the people of Nineveh believed God. All right. So what is it that Jonah did for these people that caused God to not bring his judgment? Well, the first thing he did in the first place he started, and the place we should always start, is, of course, with preaching the gospel and getting people saved. But he did more than that. Notice verse number 10. The Bible says this, and God saw their works that they turned from their evil way. And I preached the whole, you know, thing about repentance and all of that. I'm not going to go into all of that this morning. But I want you to notice that Jonah did not just preach the gospel and got these people saved. Jonah also preached other uh, sections of God's word and got these people to turn from their evil way. He got them to repent of their sins. Now, he did not get them to repent of their sins in order to be saved. But once they were saved, he taught them other things from the word of God and they turned from their evil way. And as a result of that, when God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and God, uh, and God repented of the evil that he had said unto do them, and that, excuse me, that he said that he would do unto them and he did it not. So how is it that, God, that Jonah got God to basically spare Nineveh? Well, he got these people saved, and then he taught them to observe the rest of Scripture. He got them to repent of their sins, to turn away from their wickedness, and that was the formula that Jonah used in order to keep the judgment of God of coming upon Nineveh. Go to Matthew 28 just real quickly. Keep your place there in Jonah. Here's what's interesting about that formula, that that is the exact formula that is found in the Great Commission. That is exactly what God and what Jesus told us to be doing as New Testament believers anyway. Matthew 28 and verse 19 says this, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. That's talking about preaching the gospel, preaching the gospel to every creature. So as part of the Great Commission, which is the work that we've been given as New Testament believers, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be going out and getting people saved. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then what? Notice verse 
20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. We have never stood up here, I've never stood up here at Verity Baptist Church and said, you know what, we need to go out soul winning, and that's it. In fact, if there's anyone who's adamantly preached against that, it's this guy. You know, the Great Commission is that we go out and get people saved, but you know what, that's not enough. Let's get them baptized, and let's teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. What does that mean? Let's teach them the Word of God. Let's teach them to get sin out of their life. Let's teach them to get right with God. You say, well, what will that do? Well, one thing that'll do is it'll keep God from judging us, because what did Jonah do? He got them saved, they believed God, and then he taught them to repent of their evil way. So here's all I'm saying, and I want to make sure that people understand and that I'm not, you know, misleading anybody. I am not saying that God can't or shouldn't judge the state of California, but here's what I am saying. If you or anyone else wants to say, well, this is the judgment of God, and we should be getting people saved, and we should be teaching, you know, the wicked people of California to repent of their sins, you know what I'm going to say to that? Amen. Because we should, be in, we should be in God's wrath and God's judgment mode all of the time. Amen. You say, Pastor Menace, what do you think you should do when you know, California begins to burn down? I think we should get people saved. And I think we should teach them to observe all things. And I think we should teach them to repent of their sins. Pastor Menace, what do you think we should be doing when God is prospering, you know, uh, the area you live in and there's nothing bad going on? I think we should be getting people saved. I think we should be teaching people to observe all things. I think we should be teaching people to repent of their sins after salvation. We should be in that mode all the time. That's what God has called us to do. So I want to make sure that people don't misunderstand what I'm saying. And, you know, think that I'm saying something that I'm not. We live in a wicked state. That's why churches like, like Verity Baptist Church are needed up and down the state. Because we live in a state where, you know, wickedness abounds, where liberalism abounds. And I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about just liberalism of spirituality, you know, lacking the Word of God, lacking the things of God. And we need to stand up and get people saved and teach them to observe all things. And here's the, here's the wonderful thing about that. You could be the most backslidden preacher, you know, totally not willing, uh, you don't, don't even care about people like Jonah, and this formula works. You say, why? Because it's God's formula, because it's God's plan. Now, here's what's interesting. This is what Jonah did for these people. Go, go to Jonah chapter 4 and look at verse number 1. Notice Jonah's response to this, though. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. It's hard for me to understand Jonah when here he is, a preacher of the Word of God, a prophet of the Lord, he leads Nineveh in what may be the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. You know, I, I, you know, it's hard to know exactly, but it seems like a great revival. And he's upset about it. He's not happy about it. In fact, he was rooting that God would destroy them. Verse 2, and he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying? And it's interesting because, you know, here Jonah is speaking wrong, with a wrong attitude, but he says some very true things about God, and this is the God that we serve. Notice what he says. He says, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish. Jonah said, this is why I didn't want to come to Nineveh to begin with, God. I didn't want to come here because, notice what he says, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. You know, Jonah's upset about this, and I can't agree with Jonah on this one, because I thank God that God is a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, 
and of a great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. I thank God that God in my life has been gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. So here we have Jonah. He's upset because he says, God, this is what I knew you were going to do. I knew I was going to show up, and I knew that these people were going to get saved, and I just knew that they were going to get right with God, and I knew that you were going to pardon them, and you are going to forgive them, and you were going to turn from your evil way. And he's upset of the response that he gets from God. Look at verse 3. Notice what Jonah says. And of course, Jonah's backslidden. Jonah's not thinking straight. Verse 3, he says this, Therefore, now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is actually asking God to take his life. And it's interesting because we just dealt with Elijah last week on Sunday night, you know, asking God to take his life. And then the response comes from God, verse 4. Then said the Lord, doest thou well to be angry? And God asked Jonah this question twice in this chapter. Doest thou well to be angry? So we see the issues that uh, Jonah has with God. You know, God... Uh, turns from his evil way. He uh, keeps his judgment from coming upon Nineveh. And Jonah's not happy about it. But I want you to notice that God is doing a work in Jonah. And you need to understand this about Christianity, is that even when God is working on you all the time, even when you're backslidden, even when you're not right with God, even when you don't want to see the will and the things of God happen in your life, God is always working on us and always trying to make us better. Notice verse 5, So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in uh, the shadow till he might see what would become of him. When the Bible says there that he made a booth, that word booth there is referring to something like a tent or like a stall, a light type of structure that he built up, something like what you'd see at a market or at some sort of, you know, exhibition or a fair. He kind of creates this real quick structure, the booth, and sat under it in the shadow uh, that, it might, that he might see what would become of the city. So notice Jonah, he's still rooting for the destruction of Nineveh. He's sitting there, you know, and he makes his booth, and he's going to sit there till he might see what would become of the city. He's hoping that God will still destroy it and that he'll be able to watch and partake of it. So obviously Jonah is lacking compassion here. Jonah doesn't love these people. He doesn't care about these people. Uh, he's not happy that they got saved and that they repented of the evil and that they got uh, right with God. But I want you to notice this phrase in verse 6, and this is really what we're talking about this morning morning. Notice that it says this, and the Lord God prepared. And the Lord God prepared. And if you've been paying attention as we've been going through the book of Jonah, you'll find that God is constantly preparing things, and God is constantly working in the life of Jonah. In fact, if you would, just real quickly, go back to Jonah chapter 1, and I want you to notice uh, verse number 17. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. This is what Jonah's most famously known for, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17. And the Bible says this, Jonah 1.17. Now the Lord had, notice this word, prepared. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So I want you to notice that as we began the book of Jonah, and Jonah's running from God, and Jonah's running away from God, that the Lord prepared a great fish. Not only that, if you look at verse 4, it says this, but the Lord sent out a great wind. So here we're told that God sent out, God prepared and sent out this great wind as he's working in Jonah. If you go back to Jonah chapter 4, I want you to notice that we find this phrase three different times in this chapter. We find it once 
In chapter 1, that the Lord had prepared a great fish. We find it alluded to that God had prepared a great wind and he sent it out and God is using these things in the life of Jonah. In chapter 4, we see it three different times. Notice verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd. Notice verse 7. But God prepared a worm. Notice verse 8. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And there are three different things in this chapter that we see that God prepared. He prepared a gourd. He prepared a worm. He prepared an an east wind. And what God is going to do in this chapter and what we're going to learn in this chapter is that God is going to take Jonah through a series of lessons, series of lessons and things that he's trying to teach Jonah in this chapter. And I want us as as quickly as we can to kind of go through this. Jonah chose, someone said this, Jonah chose the, uh, the schoolhouse. He chose the booth. And he decided, this is where I will learn. And God chose the lesson plan. And I want you to notice these three lessons that God is trying to teach Jonah in this final chapter of this book. The first thing we see is the lesson of the gourd. The lesson of the gourd. What is it that we can learn from this gourd that God prepared for Jonah? Jonah chapter 4 and verse 5. Notice what the Bible says. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. And there made him a booth. All right, And again, that's like a tent, a stall, a, a light structure that he created and sat under it in the shadow. So he created this booth for one reason, so that he could be comfortable, so that he could sit under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. Verse 6, and the Lord God prepared a gourd. Now I want you to understand that when the Bible uses the word gourd there, it uses the word gourd synonymously, not just with the actual, you know, uh, uh, gourd, but with the entire plant of the gourd. So this gourd plant that God prepared, the Bible says that, uh, notice there in verse 6, and made it come up over Jonah, and it might be a shadow over the head to deliver him from his grief, So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. So Jonah builds this booth. He builds this structure. And the stated purpose is that it might, uh, uh, that that he could sit under it, that it might be a shadow unto him. But he must have not done that great of a job, you know. I don't know if he builds uh, booths with the same attitude that he preaches the gospel, you know, I don't know. But he, 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 he obviously built this booth and he built it for his comfort. He built it for his convenience, but it wasn't doing the job. So God prepared a gourd and God prepared this gourd that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So what is it that God's trying to teach us in this chapter? What's the lesson that we can learn from the gourd? And the first lesson is this, that earthly possessions are a gift from God. Anything you have in this world, anything that God gives you, anything that brings convenience, that brings ease to your life, anything that brings comfort to your life is a gift from God and should be acknowledged as so. Keep your place there in Jonah chapter 4. Go with me to the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter number 1. If you start at the end of the book and you head backwards, you're going to go past the book of Revelation, of course. You start at Revelation, past Jude, past 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd and 1st Peter, and then you have the book of James. James chapter number 1 and verse 17. 
And this is kind of a good, uh, a good chapter for us to study as we're coming into the Thanksgiving season. This week we're going to be celebrating Thanksgiving. And not only are we coming into the Thanksgiving season, but we're coming into the Christmas uh, season. And, you know, this is a time of year where many people get uh, very uh, focused on possessions, get focused on, on the things of this world. You know, Christmas, unfortunately, has become much less about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it should not be so among believers, but uh, for the world, it's not about the birth of Christ, but it's about gifts and things. And even coming into this Thanksgiving season, we, we take a day to, quote-unquote, be thankful, and then Black Friday, it's on, right? We're going to get up early, and we're going to stay up late, and we're gonna, it's going to be all about things. And, and look, please understand, I'm not saying it's wrong to buy gifts. I'm not saying it's wrong to go get a good deal on Black Friday. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this, that whatever earthly possessions, whatever gourds happen to uh, arise in your life that bring you comfort and convenience, we have to acknowledge that those are a gift from God Himself. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says this, Every good gift, every good gift, and every perfect gift, remember this during Christmas, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And that's not talking about Santa Claus. And cometh down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There is someone who sees you when you're sleeping and sees you when you're awake and knows whether you've been bad or good, but it's not Santa Claus, all right? It's God Almighty God. And, you know, be careful, be careful, nothing. Don't teach your children about some man that has the attributes of God. Some man that sees you, you know, when you're sleeping and when you're awake, he knows whether you're good or bad and he brings you gifts. You're taking the attributes that belong to God. God is the one who sees you. God is the one who loves you. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of light with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. We need to realize that every earthly possession, anything in your life that brings you comfort or convenience, any gore that happens to come up in your life that makes your life easier is a gift from God. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. You're there in James. Just keep going uh, backwards. Past James, Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy. Just keep going backwards in your Bible. Past Hebrews, Philemon, Titus, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, look at verse 17. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says this, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. We'll come back to that in a second. But I want you to notice the last part of verse 17. But in the living God, notice, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Look, anything you have in this life, any comfort, convenience, any success you've had, you say, well, my job pays me well, my job gives me promotion, it is because of my job that I can live in a certain neighborhood, that I can drive a certain vehicle, that I can, you know, uh, uh, wear certain clothing, it is my, you know, it's the blessings that I have, the convenience that I have, the comfort that I have. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you got it because you're so smart or you're so talented or anything about you because it is God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Every gift comes from God. Earthly possessions are a gift from God. With that said, with that said, keep your finger there in 1 Timothy 6. Go to Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 4. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy 6 and we're going to come right back to it, all right? 1 Timothy 6, go to Jonah chapter 4. With that said... Realize this. You know, what's the lesson of the gourd? The lesson of the gourd is this, that not only are all earthly possessions a gift from God, 
But the lesson of the gourd is this, that earthly possessions should not be the source of our joy. Notice verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from the grief. Notice. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. The first time we see Jonah with a good attitude. The first time we see Jonah happy. He's angry that people got saved. He's angry that people got right. He's angry that people got pardoned. He's angry that people got forgiven. Twice in this chapter, God asked him, Doest thou well to be angry? Why are you so mad, Jonah? Why are you so bitter, Jonah? Why are you so upset, Jonah? And realize that, you know, you ought to be careful about always being upset when good things happen to other people. Well, I don't think they deserve this and they deserve that. But, you know, here we see Jonah for the first time. He's exceeding glad. Why? Because of a little comfort and a little convenience. Because of a gourd that he received. And earthly possessions should not be the source of our joy. Look, you shouldn't get more joy from a gourd than from somebody getting saved. You shouldn't get more joy from a raise. Nothing wrong with a raise. I'm constantly praying for uh, people in our church and, uh, you know, to get raises and get promotions and that God would bless them. There's nothing wrong with that. But we should not get joy from those things. We should not get joy from the earthly possessions. We should not get joy from the things that, uh, that, that we have in this world more than, you know, while we have a bad attitude about soul winning or bad attitude about people getting right with God or bad attitude about people having something, uh, the, God, the blessing of God upon their lives when we don't think it should be there. Go back to 1 Timothy 6. Notice verse 17 again. We, our tendency as human beings is to derive our joy from earthly possessions. We derive our joy from the gourds in our lives. And the Bible teaches us that we need to... That we need to Forsake that. We need to watch out for that. First Timothy 6.17 says this, charge them. Charge them that are rich in this world. Here Paul is speaking to Timothy, and he's telling this young preacher, Timothy, you need to charge them. You need to teach them. You need to instruct them that are rich in this world. And let me just explain something to you. If you live in the United States of America, you are rich in this world. You say, well, I'm not rich. You're not rich in comparison to other rich people. Maybe that's true. You're not rich in comparison to other Americans. Maybe that's true. But when you compare yourself to the rest of this world, if you live in the United States of America, you are living a rich lifestyle. And here it says, you know, charge them that are rich in this world. Notice that they be not high-minded. Look, don't start thinking too highly of yourself because of your possessions, because of your gourds. He said that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. Don't start trusting in your gourd. Don't start trusting in those things that bring you comfort and convenience. Why? Because what we've already talked about. But in the living God, hey, uh, trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Now keep your place there in First Timothy. Go back to Jonah chapter 4. But I want you to notice there's three lessons that we're learning. We're in the, in the school of the booth with Jonah. And the first lesson is the lesson of the gourd. What do we learn? We learn this, that earthly possessions are a gift from God and that earthly possessions should not be our source of joy. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And our joy ought to come from God and knowing God and our relationship with God and the things of God and spiritual things. And whenever you begin to derive your joy, your contentment, your happiness from a gourd, you're in trouble, Jonah. Notice the second lesson. 
Not only do we see the lesson from the gourd, but we see the lesson from the worm. Notice verse 7. But God, this is after God prepared a gourd to bring comfort and convenience to Jonah. In verse 7, the Bible says, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose. Notice, the next day. How long did the gourd last? The next day. How long did the gourd last? One day. Notice, what does the worm do? And it smote the gourd that it withered. What is the lesson from the worm? Because the lesson from the gourd is this. Earthly possessions are a gift from God. And we should not uh, uh, derive our happiness and our joy and our contentment from the earthly possessions. What is the lesson from the worm? The lesson from the worm is this. Earthly possessions can disappear just as soon as they appeared. Keep your place there in Jonah chapter 4. Go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Let's run some verses. Gourds can wither away as soon and as quickly as they sprung up. The lesson from the gourd is that we should not get our, our joy and our contentment from the gourd. But the lesson from the worm is that gourds wither away. Is that earthly possessions disappear, is that they disappear as soon as they appear. And here's what you need to understand. Anything that we have in this world, you will lose it one day. Anything that we have in this world, it will uh, wither away one day. Any gourd that you have in this world that you're proud of, that you're high-minded about, that brings you comfort and brings you convenience, just realize in the same way that God can prepare a gourd, God can prepare a worm to cause that gourd to wither away. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, notice what the Bible says. Matthew 6, 19 says this, Lay not up for yourselves gourds upon the earth. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Why? Here's why. Where moth and rust doth corrupt. You say, why? Here's why. Gourds wither away. And where thieves break through and steal. See, the lesson from the gourd, here's what you need to understand. Sometimes God gives us blessings. Sometimes God gives us gourds in our life in order to see how we will respond to those blessings, how we will respond to those gourds, how we will respond to that comfort and that convenience that He gives us. Some people can't handle the blessings of God. That's why God says, unto whom much is given, much shall be required. That's why the Bible says, if you're faithful in the things which are least, then God will, uh, then God will give you more. Why? Because sometimes he gives us a little bit just to see how do we, we respond. And if we respond well, if we don't let it go to our heads, if we don't begin to trust and derive our joy from those gourds. And God said, well, here's somebody I can trust with more gourds. Here's somebody I can trust with more riches. Here's somebody I can trust with more blessings. But when we get that gourd and it goes to our head and we get proud and arrogant, and it draws us away from God, then God says, man, I gave him that blessing to see how he'd respond. And it wasn't good. But listen, sometimes God will take away his blessing. You say, why? To see how he responds. To see how you respond. To see, see, God not only wants to see how we respond to the blessing of God, but God wants to see how we respond to the taking away of those Blessings. Go to Genesis 22, just real quickly. Genesis 22, first book in the Bible, should be fairly easy to find. Genesis 22, let me give you an illustration of this. Remember Abraham in the Bible? Abraham, for years and years and years and years and years, had been promised by God that he would have a son by the name of Isaac. And God eventually gave him the blessing, the promise of Isaac. And what's interesting 
is that almost as soon as God gives them, you know, in the Bible, obviously not in real time, but it seems like as you read Scripture, almost as soon as Abraham gets Isaac, Abraham is being asked by God to give up Isaac. Genesis 22, look at verse 12. And he said, God puts Abraham to a test and says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on Mount Moriah. And you know, if you know the story, Abraham goes up the mountain and he's willing to do it. And of course, there's a lot of picture and symbolism there of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 12, the Bible says this, and he said, Let not thine hand, uh, uh, lay not thine hand upon the lad. This is God speaking, the angel of the Lord speaking to uh, uh, Abraham and telling him, don't hurt uh, Isaac. Because uh, Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son because this is what God asked. He says, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. Notice what he says. Seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. You say, well, this is an earthly possession. This is, this is God. This is a son. But listen, all of our children are a gift from God. And they belong to God. And I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. And, I'm, and I realize that losing a child is a, is a difficult thing. And, and I've never experienced that. And I hope I never do. And I'm not trying to be, you know, uncompassionate to those of you that may have lost a child. But you need to realize that those children belong to God. And God can choose to take them as he pleases. And there should be nothing in this world. There should be no possession. There should be no relationship. There should be nothing, no one in this world that if God chooses to take them, we would hold it against God. Because, look, God, sometimes God gives to see how we respond. Sometimes God takes to see how we respond. And here we're told that God, God just wanted to see, Abraham, I bless you with the son, but are you going to make an idol out of the son? Are you going to love the son more than you love me? Are you going to be more loyal to the son more than you are to me? And when God was satisfied that Abraham was willing, if God chose that Abraham was willing to give up uh, Isaac, then God said, he said, uh, thou hast not withheld thy son. He says, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. And here's all I'm saying. Is there anything in this world, is there anything in this world that if God chose to take it from you, you would turn away from God because this is the lesson of the worm, that God gives and God takes away. Job 121, you don't have to turn there. Job, of course, when he lost all his possessions and his children, when his friends turned against him, said this and said, Job 121, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return hither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name. Of the Lord. If earthly possessions are a source of your joy, please understand this. If earthly possessions are the source of your joy, if you don't learn the lesson from the gourd, then you will unfortunately probably one day, and not probably all of us, will learn the lesson of the worm. And here's the lesson of the worm, that when you make the gourds the source of your joy, when you make the gourds the source of your happiness, when you make the gourds the source of your contentment, when you make the gourds the only thing, the only thing that's going to make me happy is this certain gourd. And that gourd may come in the way of a house. It may come in the way of a vehicle. It may come in the way of some gadget. It may come in the way of some clothing. It may come in the way of a relationship. It may come in the way of a husband or a wife or even a child. When you decide that the only happiness and joy that I have is wrapped up in this gourd, realize when the gourd disappears, so will your happiness. So will your contentment. 
so will your joy. See, the reason that God doesn't want us to derive our happiness from the gourds is because of the worms. It's because gourds wither away. Matthew chapter 6, can you go back there? Matthew chapter 6. We saw in verse 19 where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. In verse 20 he says this, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. Why? Why? Why does God want us to lay up treasures in heaven and not treasures on earth? Here's why. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, listen to me, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Look, if you're just laying up treasures on the earth, 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 you know where your heart is? With those treasures on the earth. Here's the problem. Those treasures are going to corrupt. They're going to weather away. They're going to disappear and they're going to be destroyed. And God says, look, the lesson of the gourd is this. Don't derive your joy from the things of this world. Say, pastor, is there anything wrong with getting things of this world? Nothing in the world wrong with having the blessing of God upon your life and having earthly possessions. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But make sure that that is not the source of your joy. Because the worm is coming. Colossians chapter 3, if you kept your place there in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, uh, just go backwards from 1 Timothy, and you're going to go past 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, into Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, notice verse 1. And again, this is why I said, this is a good lesson for us to have right before Thanksgiving, right? Because we're supposed to learn to be thankful. The Bible says, you know, to be thankful in all things. And when it says to be thankful in all things, that means we're to be thankful when things are going well and when things are not going well. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, he's saying, look, if, you're, if your hope is in the resurrection of Christ, if you're saved, he says, seek those things which are, uh, which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection, set your love, Set your heart on things above, not on the things in the earth. You say, why? Because worms make gourds wither. <laughs> Philippians chapter 4, you're there in Colossians. Just turn back one page. Philippians chapter 4, notice what Paul says. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11. Philippians 4:11 says this, Not that I speak in respect of want. This is Paul speaking. He says, For I have learned, he says, For I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He said, I've learned to be content. I've learned to find satisfaction. I've learned to find joy and happiness. In whatever state I happen, my, I happen, my life happens to be in. Verse 12, he says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. He says, I, I know how, here's what he's saying. I know how to be happy when the gourds come and I know how to be happy when the worms come. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed. Listen, this is not, contentment is not something that happens to you. Most people think, if I could just get this to happen, if I could just get this thing to happen, if I could just get my husband to do this, or if I could get my wife to do this, or if I could get my kids to do this, or if I could get my boss to do this, or whatever it might be, if I can get my neighbor to do this, or if I could get this, or if I could get that, or if I could get him, or if I could get her, and they think, if I can just make things, my circumstances, the state that I find myself in, if I can make that change, then I would be happy. You're sorely mistaken, and here's why. Because if your joy, if your joy is connected to something outside of you and God, then your joy is controlled by something outside of you and God. 
This is why Paul says, he says, whatsoever sin I am, he said, uh, uh, therewith to be content. He says, I know both how to be abased and how to abound everywhere in all things. He says, I am instructed. He said, this is something I learned. This, not just, this did not just happen. He said, this is purposeful. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This is why Hebrews 13.5, you don't have to turn there. Go back to Job chapter 4. But in Hebrews 13.5, the Bible says this, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he had said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. For a long time, I used to wonder about that verse. I used to think, I get the whole, you know, let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. But I didn't understand the last part of that verse where he says, For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. And I used to think, what does that have to do with the other? I get that we're not supposed to be covetousness, that we're not supposed to be covetous, and that we should be content with the things that we have. But what, what, is it, what, what does that have to do with the fact, you know, eternal security, that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, with the fact that the Holy Spirit abides in me and that he's never going to uh, uh, leave me? What do those things have connected? And here's what you need to understand. The, the, the reason that that verse is phrased that way is because here's what God is saying. No matter what you have, your joy should not come from those gourds. He said, if you're full or you're, uh, if, or you're suffering need, if you're full or you're hungry, if you're abounding or you're abased, he said, no matter what state you're in, you can be content because I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Amen. Because I am always with you. And your joy should come from God. Go back to Jonah chapter 4. We talked about the lesson of the gourd. And we talked about the lesson of the worm. But let's talk just real quickly about the lesson of the east wind. Because remember, there's three things that God prepared in this chapter for Jonah. He prepared a worm. He prepared a gourd. But lastly, I want you to notice that he prepared a vehement east wind. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 8 says this, And it came to pass when the sun did arise. Remember, the, the, the worm took the gourd away. So now Jonah is left with what he can produce, which is a booth that is not doing a very good job at bringing shade. And, and by the way, if it wasn't for the blessing of God, that's all you'd produce too. So don't get high-minded about how smart you are and how successful you are and you're the hardest worker and you're this and you're that. Whatever blessing you have is because God is working on your behalf. Amen. Jonah chapter 4 and verse 8, And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die. Now that's a, a, a serious statement except for the fact that Jonah already wished for himself to die earlier. So he's just that type of guy. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, notice the question that comes from God. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? When you're mad at God, when you're angry at God, when you're upset with God, when you're discontent because of the lack of gourds in your life, the question that God asks you and me and every other Jonah is this. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? He said, I do. Jonah has a bad attitude. I do well to be angry, even unto death. Notice what he says in verse 10. Actually, you know what? Go into the book of Psalms just real quickly. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's, let's talk about this affliction real quickly. We saw in the lesson on the gourd, 
that sometimes God blesses us to see how we respond. And we saw in the lesson of the worm that God, sometimes God removes from us to see how we respond. In the lesson on the east wind, what we see is that sometimes God afflicts us to see how we respond to his affliction. And here's what you need to understand. The affliction of God on your life, the affliction of God on your life, when God sends the vehement east wind in your life, it can do one of two things in your life. It can make you bitter or it can make you better. It will make you bitter at God or it will make you better with God. And we see the decision that Jonah made. He decided to get bitter. I do well to be angry, even unto death. I don't deserve this. I should have that gourd. You don't understand God. You're not just God. He chose to get bitter at God. But there is another option to the afflictions in your life. Psalm 119, if you're there, if you open your Bible, just right in the center of the Bible, you'll find the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, look at verse 67. This is what Jonah should have said. Jonah should have said this, before I was afflicted, I went astray. That applies to Jonah. Before I was afflicted, I ran away. Before I was afflicted, I was, you know, on my way to the other side of whatever God wanted me to do. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. See, sometimes the affliction in your life actually brings you back to God. Psalm 119, verse 75, just a few uh, verses down. Verse 75 says this, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right. Here's what Jonah should have said. When that vehement east went was causing the sun to beat down upon his head, and his convenience and his comfort was gone. What he should have said was this, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. You say, Pastor Jimenez, how should I respond when the gourds in my life have withered away and when the vehement east wind comes into my life and when I feel like God is afflicting me and God is, is not you know, blessing me and God is, is bringing these things into my life? What should I do? Here's what you should do. You should realize that God wants to see how you're going to respond and what you should say is this. I know, O oh Lord, that thy judgments are right. Look, God is always right. Whatever God decides to do, it's right. Whatever, God, whatever gourd God decides to take away, he's right. And he's just. And that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. If God is afflicting you, he's afflicting you for a reason. If God is afflicting you, he's trying to do something in you. He's trying to work something in you. He's trying to accomplish something great in you. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at it. A couple of verses, 2 Corinthians, look at a couple of verses in Jonah, we'll be done for this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in the New Testament, we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. The lesson of the gourd is earthly possessions are a gift from God, and earthly possessions should not be the source of our joy. The lesson of the worm is that earthly possessions can disappear as soon as they appear, and earthly possessions should be something that we're willing to lose. Only the eternal things are the things that matter. Lesson number three of the East Wind shows us that afflictions can make you bitter and afflictions can make you better. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this, for our light affliction. Isn't that, what, isn't that what Jonah's going through? I mean, you think Jonah's going to get to heaven and tell, like, you know, tell good stories about this event? You know, you think, you think Jonah's going to get to heaven when, you know, the apostles were martyred? and imprisoned, and beaten, 
And Joseph's going to be like, well, you know what? It was was a really hot day one day. And the sun was beating down, and, you know, there was this worm. you, You know, it's a long story, but it was tough. But, you know, honestly, that's how you and I are going to sound like in heaven. We live in the United States of America, the most convenient and comfortable place this world has ever known. And our light affliction, which is but for a moment, notice, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. When God brings afflictions in our lives, when God brings the east wind in our lives, he is trying to get your rewards in heaven to be more exceeding and to be eternal. He's trying to get you to get more rewards and to get you the type, the right type of rewards, not to be focused on the temporal, but on the eternal. The light, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Keep your finger there. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Let's finish up the chapter. Jonah chapter 4. What's the lesson? The lesson is this. Don't overemphasize the temporal over the eternal. Nothing wrong with temporal. We're here. We live in this world. We got to eat. We need clothing. We need resources. Nothing wrong with that. But don't let that become a priority over the eternal. In verse 10, the Bible says this, Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd. He said, You had more compassion over the gourd for the which thou hast not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Because remember, what, what is Jonah mad about? Jonah is mad that God took pity upon Nineveh. Jonah is mad that God did not cast down his wrath upon Nineveh. Jonah is mad that because these people actually got saved and they actually repented of their sins after salvation and got right with God, that God had pity on them. And God says, you took pity over the gourd, verse 11, and should I not spare that great city? Wherein are more than six score thousand? 120,000 persons. It's a major city. Not just 120,000 persons in the city. There's 120,000 persons in the city that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. And their left hand. Most people agree that that statement is a reference to the very young children in the city. And God says, you're mad at me for, you don't want me to spare Nineveh. There's 120,000 kids in that city. And, and, you know, also much cattle. Just a reference there, obviously, cattle doesn't have a soul. They don't go to heaven or hell. But, you know, God, God even teaches us to treat animals well and to, to not harm animals to the best of our ability. And God says, God says you're upset about the gourd when there's people who are going to die and go to hell over here. You're, you, you take more pity. You give more attendance. You give more of your time and energy and effort Literally, there are people in this world who literally choose to work on their gardens and say, I I can't go soul winning because i got to work on my gourd, literally a gourd. (laughs) Then the people that are dying and going to hell. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with gardens. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with gourds. You might have a gourd for Thanksgiving (laughs) on your table. What I'm saying is this, that that we should never allow the temporal to take precedence over the eternal. 
Now, there's something interesting about this chapter, and I kind of want to just, well, actually, go back to 2 Corinthians 14. Let me give you the last first 2 Corinthians, and I'll give you a last statement here in Jonah. 2 Corinthians 4.18. Notice what he says. He said, for our light affliction, verse 17, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, verse 18. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, something interesting about Jonah, if you notice the book, it kind of just ends abruptly. There's not really like closure or a conclusion. I I feel bad for Jonah because we don't really see him get right with God in this chapter. I, I think, jo- you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be nice to Jonah, all right? And uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> I think we all will, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I'm going to talk to Jonah. I'm going to say, man, tell me about this whale. You know, tell me this and that. But I, if I were Jonah, I, I'd probably be going around, you know, telling people like, now listen, you, you didn't get the rest of the story. You know, eventually I did get right with God, okay? <laughs> you know, hopefully he did. We don't know because it kind of just ends abruptly. It just kind of ends right there. God says, you know, and should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than 6,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? And then it's just kind of like God drops the mic and he's done. It's just the end. You say, what? what is that? Why is that? And, you know, most books of the Bible don't end like this. Most books of the Bible do end with some sort of conclusion and some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of uh, closure to the end of the story. This story does not end that way, and I believe that the reason, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, I think the reason that this doesn't end this way is because God is trying to teach us something about human nature. And what God is teaching us about human nature is that, unfortunately, you ever heard this phrase, you know, old dogs don't learn new tricks? God's been working with Jonah. God's been working with Jonah. And if you've noticed, Jonah's been a very angry person in this book. He's angry at the beginning. He he gets right with God. And I believe that he genuinely got right with God in the belly of the whale. But then once the judgment of God leaves and once the affliction's done, he's just back to his old ways. And unfortunately, I think God kind of just ends his way because I think Jonah probably just kind of ended this way. And, you know, what, what I've learned in my life over the last eight-plus years of ministry is that by the time someone gets to the age of, you know, 30 years old or 35 years old or 40 years old, they're kind of set in their ways. And I'm not saying that God can't do a great work in their lives. But the truth of the matter is that once you find someone who's just a bitter person, they're just bitter, 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 there's probably not a lot you're going to be able to do that for that person unless they personally decide, you know, I need to get this bitterness out of my life. You're probably just going to have to, okay, we're done. You know, when there's angry people, you can ask them, do it that well to be angry? Why are you so angry? You can try to work. You know, what I've learned is by the time you're like 30, 35, 40, and you're just a rude person, you're probably never going to fix that. I mean, I hope people do fix that. But you tell people like, man, would you have to be so rude? And they're like, I don't think I'm rude. <laughs> you have to be so angry. I don't think I'm angry. You have to be so bitter. I don't think I'm bitter. And it's just kind of, you get to the end of the book, and it's just kind of like, that's where we are. And I hope Jonah got right. And here's the, you say, well, where's the application? Here's the application. Don't be Jonah. Don't come to the end of your story with no conclusion. Don't come to the end of your story with no closure. Don't come to the end of your story without at least one finishing statement that says, but he got it right. Is Jonah going to be in heaven? Absolutely. But was there a good end to the story? Unfortunately, there wasn't. 
So don't be Jonah. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for these stories, these examples and examples. And Lord, thank you for the study that we've done in John.